Good evening. I'd like to welcome everyone to the services this evening. I have uh, been encouraged, encouraged and uplifted by the services thus far. appreciate the singing. I appreciate the, um, the prayer by Brother Patrick, uh, specifically what he said in regards to the lesson. Indeed, I hope that God has given all the glory and honor tonight. Um, ever since I moved to uh, Channel View, it's been kind of hard to, uh, from a logistical standpoint and scheduling, to find uh, time to speak here in Pearland, but anytime I have the opportunity to, I'm very thankful and grateful um, that you give me this opportunity to, to bring a message from God's Word to you. Um, tonight we are uh, continuing in our chapter studies, and we're in a uh, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to flip to that chapter. That's where we'll be taking our lesson from this evening. I'll also have the scriptures up here on the um, the projector, the PowerPoint, as we go throughout the lesson for your convenience. We'll be going through the first 17 chapters, I mean, first 17 verses uh, this evening. It won't be that long, I promise you. All right. Um, I can think of no better way to start a chapter study than to just get to reading. So let's go ahead and start with uh, Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. It says, And he entered into a ship, talking about Jesus here, and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think he evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now this first part of the chapter here, I want to kind of break it up from the rest. Um, I want us to notice verse 2 in particular, um, because the, the ending of verse 2 is really kind of the theme of this first part of, of our chapter this evening. The Lord speaks and says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Okay, he says, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be for, uh, forgiven. He's talking to the man with palsy or the man who is paralyzed. The most basic and essential message that God gives to every man, a sinner, we're all sinners, and the most uh, fundamental aspect of Christianity is to understand and realize that we are sinners, and that without the forgiveness of sin, we cannot be in his presence. We cannot be um, with him. And the core principle, or one of the core principles of Christianity, is understanding that, is understanding this message that Jesus presents here in this chapter. Okay? This miracle that he performs here is one that is unique from all the other miracles that he has done thus far in the book of Matthew. 
Uh, the book of Matthew, we know, we've read, it's full of miracles. It's full of miracles that represent Christ's power. It represents his sovereignty over the earth, over all the world. But even beyond that, these miracles illustrate his character as the true prophesied Messiah, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And that's very important for us to understand. Um, there's kind of been a slow buildup, if you've noticed from chapter 8 to our chapter this evening, a slow buildup, if you will, uh, from the miracles presented in that chapter to, to this point. If we go, if you look back at chapter 8, and we'll just do a little review here, it all started with um, uh, Jesus when he, he laid his hand on the man who had leprosy, and he healed the man just by touching him, and he healed his sickness. Uh, then he healed, we read about, we hear, we read about how he healed the centurion, uh, the centurion's servant. And then he banished the fever of, uh, Peter's wife's mother. So he's healing people physically, right? He's healing their, their sicknesses, their ailments. And then, uh, after that, we see how he moves on. He's in the, we read about how he gets on the ship. He's, uh, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And he goes beyond the physical miracles. Okay? He begins to deal with nature. He begins to exhibit and show his power over nature, his authority over nature. We read about how he stilled the winds and the waves. The winds and the waves obeyed at his word. And then he showed not only his power over the physical and over nature, but also his power over supernatural forces when he cast out demons toward the, la the latter part of that chapter. So we see these three different um, aspects of Jesus' authority, his authority over um, the physical, his authority over nature as a whole, and then his authority over the supernatural um, when he cast out the demons. And now here in our chapter, he goes even beyond that, and he shows that he has the power over the entire root of mankind's sorrow, the root of all our issues in this world, the evil that separates man from his maker and that issue or that, that, um, that being sin. He has power over sin. And so the great physician, as, as he is known and as we call him, can not only heal the sick, he can not only control nature, and deal with demons, but he can bring to the human soul that thing that it needs the most, and that is the forgiveness of sin. This is another mark of the authority of Jesus Christ. There are other references in the book of Matthew to Christ's authority. We'll look at some of those. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Jesus acted like a leader. The people looked to him when he spoke, and he spoke as one who had authority. So he showed, he exhibited that authority when he spoke, when he taught, and that was important because he needed to show those attributes of a leader so people would follow him, so people would be willing to listen to what he had to say. He was charismatic, he, was, uh, he had a way with words, and people looked to him and were inspired by his message and his speeches that he gave. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And this is a very bold statement, and it's a very 
straightforward statement. Jesus was made ruler over the heaven and the earth. God gave him that authority that was bestowed upon him. He had that authority over heaven and earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, he showed us his authority over religion. We talked about the different authorities he had in in, um, Matthew chapter 8. Verses 1 to 13 in Matthew chapter 8, his authority over disease is shown. Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 through 27, his authority over nature. Chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, his authority over demons and the supernatural. And now in our chapter this evening, we see his authority over sin. Christ had the authority over all things when he was on this earth, and it's important for us to keep that in mind. Now remember this, as I said earlier, it's important for Matthew to clearly mark out that Jesus is fit to be the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He had to uh, adhere to those prophecies that came all the years before, otherwise his ministry would mean nothing. Um, He had to show that he was fit to be the one who could bring the kingdom, uh, to uh, bring in a new age, a new era, and bring in the kingdom of God. Um, Old Testament prophecy told of a future kingdom that would be marked by forgiveness. And we can see some references to that. First in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, verses 20 through 24. It says, Look upon Zion, the city of our Solomonites. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us, a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Thy tacklings are loosed, they cannot well strengthen their mass, they cannot spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided, the lame take the prey. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick, the people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. We see other references to this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 3. Comfort, the, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your, uh, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of them that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we see here that in the Old Testament, both of these scriptures here in Isaiah refer to forgiveness of a future kingdom. And here we find in chapter 9, in our first part here, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in human flesh, is able to forgive sin, thus is fitted not only to be God, but to be the Messiah to establish that kingdom of God in the earth and all throughout eternity. He had that authority. He was the Messiah. And he proved all those prophecies true. So these are not just random miracles. I know sometimes it's kind of easy for us to just kind of read through the books of the gospel and think that these are just random acts of kindness, random miracles that Jesus performed. There's nothing random about this. They have a very specific and calculated point. Jesus had the power and the authority to fulfill Old Testament promises. And that is what this particular miracle is showing us here. This makes the unbelief and the rejection of the Pharisees all the more unbelievable and heinous because the accuracy of the fulfillment is so very specific. 
and yet they were, their hearts were hardened and they could not accept it. They did not want to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. And even if they did believe it, they did not want to acknowledge it. The scripture says that Jesus forgave this man in our chapter, in chapter 9. The man with palsy, after seeing their faith, meaning the faith of the man and whoever was with him. And we see in other books of the gospel, the book of Luke, this scene played out in those gospels as well. We won't go there this evening, but we see some more details filled in how the man was able to get there because he was paralyzed, how he was lowered into the house, and the people who were with him him, um, showed great faith as well by uh, bringing him to that, to where Jesus was um, teaching and where he was at the time. Um, This man who was paralyzed, and that's what palsy means, he was paralyzed, he must have shown incredible faith and a repentance for his past sins in order for Jesus to react in this manner. He says, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Have courage. Take strength. Your sins are forgiven thee. This is salvation. This is forgiveness right here. True, full, and complete forgiveness that he has given this man right here. And sins are sent away. So we know that he had sin. We know that um, he had great faith because the scripture says, Jesus seeing their faith. So we know he had great faith and he had to have had repentance in his heart because if he didn't, Jesus wouldn't have been willing to just forgive him his sins. If that were the case, Jesus would have just gone around forgiving every one of their sins. But this man obviously had great faith and a willing heart to repent of his past wrongdoings. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 12 through 15. This is Paul speaking. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation, acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Jesus' purpose, as Paul clearly states here, his purpose for coming into this world was to save the sinner. And we'll see that theme repeated throughout our chapter this evening. To bring salvation to the world. And God gave him the authority to do so, and as we just saw in our chapter, Jesus was able to exercise his authority. Thankfully, he still has that authority today, along with dominion over death, because we know that he died, he was crucified, he was buried, and then he was resurrected, thus accomplishing his ultimate mission, which was, again, to provide a pathway to salvation for sinners. So he still has that authority, he still has the ability to forgive sins, and he still exercises that authority today. And praise God for that. Notice Jesus' argument to the scribes. Specifically, uh, notice his argument that he gives um, the scribes who are accusing him of blasphemy here. They're saying this man blasphemeth. Because again, they couldn't accept the fact that he was the true Messiah. They just, they could not, they, they saw him, they saw what he had done. And they had probably heard stories of what he had done in other places, 
and yet they still could not accept the fact that he, this Jesus could be the Messiah, the one spoken of in the Old Testament that they were so um, dedicated to. Verse 5 is his response. He says, For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, which is easier? To say to a man that his sins are forgiven, or to say to a man who's paralyzed, Get up and walk? Well, they're stuck here. You notice they don't give an answer. There is no answer because neither is easier. Both, both are impossible to men. But as we see, both are possible to God. For we see in uh, verse 6, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. In that last part, he speaks to the paralyzed man. So he's proving a point. He underscores his ability to forgive sins by also reinforcing his authority to physically heal others. He proves that he is capable of both. If he can do one thing, he can do the other. Because nobody, no man would have been able to take this man who was paralyzed, who had palsy, and with a simple word spoken, allow him to get up and, and start walking, take his bed and go back to his, his house. No man would have been able to do that. Jesus did. And so he was also able to forgive this man his sins. Let's continue now in our um, chapter. Uh, we'll read verses 9 through 13 here. It says, And Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. <clears throat> and it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he saith unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 13 gives us the full perspective of Jesus' ministry on this earth. The Lord says, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the message of Christianity. The essence of the gospel, the reason God sent his only son to this earth in the first place. Why did Jesus come into the world? Clearly, he says it, to help sinners, to call sinners. Those who are desperate, those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are tired, those who are weak, who are weary, who are broken, those who, whose lives are shattered, sinners who know that they're sinners, sinners who know that they need help, who are seeking help, who are seeking answers, these are the type of people that Jesus came to save and came to call to him. Bear in mind, we just read of an instance where Jesus forgave the sins of a man. He has the ability, we've already talked about this, he has the ability, he has the power to forgive sins. So now, immediately after, we have this instance where he's um, dining with publicans and sinners after that, um, after forgiving the man 
of his sins, it's natural that these questions would probably be asked. Okay, so if Jesus has the ability to forgive sin, you know, how much sin can he forgive? Whose sin, whose sin in particular can he forgive? Um, many questions can arise just from this event that we read about with the man with palsy. And that, uh, therein lies the reason why we have the following verses and why we see the way this chapter is structured because verse 13 kind of ties it all together. He can forgive sin, yes, but whose sin can he forgive? How far does it go and what is the required response? <clears throat> what is necessary to experience this forgiveness? All these questions are answered in what follows. First, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Jesus takes, um, we see that Jesus takes in Matthew. Okay, in verse 9, we read of this man named Matthew, and of course Matthew is the, the author of this gospel. Um, and Matthew was a tax collector or a publican. Um, and Jesus, we see, he goes to Matthew and he says, follow me. So he wants Matthew to be one of his followers. And we see how Matthew indeed takes, uh, takes up and follows Jesus. But I want to focus particularly on the fact that of who Matthew was, what his occupation was at the time. Um, he was a tax collector, he was a publican, and it's important to understand that the Jews at the time, they absolutely despised the publicans. They already felt that they shouldn't be paying uh, taxes to any government or any uh, figure other than God because they still clung to the old law and the notion that um, that only God should receive their money, only God should receive um, all of their their uh, their wealth, um, and even that was being exploited and abused by the Jewish leaders of the time. So it was it was a very um, very touchy subject for the Jewish people at that at that time, um, and that's why later on in Matthew, when Jesus tells the Pharisees to render under Caesar those things which are Caesar's, and unto God those things which are God's. This was seen as taking a very radical stance, um, or this was seen as a very radical take by the Jews. So Jesus is already associating himself uh, with people or with a person in Matthew who is viewed as being an unclean and very worldly individual. Um, so Jesus is already associating himself with people who are um, away from the Jewish standards of the time. And then in verse 10, we see that he's actually eating, he's dining, and he's mingling with a group of publicans and, the Bible says, sinners. And that word sinners is used to describe individuals at the time who did not even touch the old law or adhere to it. Um, so these were the vilest of the vile in the eyes of the Pharisees. And they were probably thinking, the Pharisees were probably thinking to themselves, well, if this is really the Messiah here, if this is God uh, on earth, then why is he dining, why is he eating with these sinners, these unclean people, uh, instead of you know, dining at our houses? Because you know, we're righteous, we, we adhere to the old law. Why is he dining with these people and not us? And the answer is because he came to save sinners, we see in verse 13. And if you're not willing to admit that you have sin in your life, he has nothing to say to you. If you're not willing to come to him, if you're not willing to accept the fact that you have sin in your life, he's not going to deal with you. Verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Now this is not just an honest question that they're asking here. 
Why is he doing this? Could you please tell us? That's not the point. That's not what they're getting at. What they're really, what they're really doing is giving a stinging rebuke on Jesus. They're venting their bitterness, maybe perhaps their jealousy. Shame on you for following a man who fraternizes with sinners, they're saying to the disciples. Shame on you. He's doing this. Why are you following him? Why are you associating yourself with this person? They're being hateful and vindictive without really outwardly, brazenly showing it. You might call it um, passive aggression. But Jesus, of course, sees the true nature of their hearts. He understands why they're asking the question. He understands their ulterior motives in asking the question. So he responds to them accordingly. Um, in uh, verse 12 and 13, we see Jesus' Jesus's response. They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I like the analogy he uses in, in verse 12, and this is an analogy that we, we've seen over and over again in Jesus' teachings. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. All right? If you're healthy, if you're in great health, you're not going to go to the doctor and claim that there's something wrong with you because there's nothing wrong with you. Sick people need a doctor, not healthy people. He's calling out the Pharisees here because the Pharisees are the ones who are saying, these people that you're eating with, these sinners, they're unclean. They're not healthy from a spiritual standpoint. If that's the case, then they need a physician to heal them more than anyone. They need the physician because they're unclean, they're sick spiritually. And you Pharisees are the ones who are saying it. Jesus is kind of turning their argument back around on them. The scribes and Pharisees would have made lousy doctors. They were more concerned with the preservation of their own holiness, their own perceived righteousness, than with helping someone else or helping those who actually needed it. And then Jesus quotes Hosea, uh, the book of Hosea. And that quote is, you can see it in verse 13, Go ye learn that which meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And let's look at that verse really quickly. Hosea chapter 6 uh, and verse 6. It says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. This is God speaking through the prophet Hosea. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, God says, I'm not concerned with the ritual. I'm concerned with the heart. What is your heart? I mean, is your heart truly invested in what you're doing? Not the ritual itself, but what's happening on the inside. Here's another uh, interesting passage as I was looking through the book of Hosea. I, th I thought this was interesting. It kind of mirrored um, the attitudes of the Pharisees uh, nicely. Uh, if, we if you look in Hosea chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through 19, it says, They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom, and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery, for themselves are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall. Thou, I mean, though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, Neither ye go up to Beth Haven, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now that Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined 
to idols, let him alone. Their drink is sour, they have committed whoredom continually. Their rulers with shame do love, give uh, their, her rulers with shame do love, give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. God is saying to his people, you've whored yourselves out. You've played the harlot. You've gone into idolatry. You've left me. You've forsaken me. And yet you still crank out your little religious ritual. Just going through the motions. No true spirituality. No true understanding because their hearts are not right. Their hearts are not truly in the ritual itself. They are just going through the motions. Finally, getting back to our passage, Jesus says that he has come to call sinners, not the righteous. Uh Uh-oh, Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This verse immediately precedes the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And if you know your Bible, you know the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Which one was exalted? The publican. And the Pharisee was abased because of their attitudes. The Pharisee was self-righteous. The publican was humble. The publican was ultimately exalted by, by God. Jesus has accepted the Pharisees' self-evaluation, their own self-evaluation. They've evaluated themselves as being righteous. They've evaluated themselves as being holy people. So Jesus has accepted that. He said, okay, Pharisees, um, that's why I'm spending time with these people over here, because they're sinners and they need me. You apparently don't, don't need me, so I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to deal with these people who actually need my help and who are actually coming for answers and who need um, healing. He has come to call sinners, not the self-righteous. That's important for us to remember because we're all sinners and we need to act like we came from a place of sin and not a place of holiness where we were already holy or now that we, those of us who have been saved, we have to have that same attitude of humbleness, humility because we all came from that same place. Let's uh, read our final three verses here, chapter 9. I'm sorry, final four verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, it says, "Then Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride's chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break. And the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both, both are preserved." In verse 14, we see the disciples of John introduced. And now these are the disciples of, or they refer to themselves as disciples of John, John the Baptist. Uh, You remember back um, when John the Baptist had come, many people followed him. Uh, John was born before Jesus, and he kind of came as a, a, a shadow of what was to come of Jesus. He taught the 
the, uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus once Jesus was here. And at a certain point in his life, he tried to transfer his followers over to Christ. I think that's important for us to see. Uh, so in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 30, uh, it says, Ye yourselves bear me witness. This is John the Baptist speaking to his followers. He said, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, you've got to leave me, and you've got to go to the real Messiah now. He's here. Go follow him. But it's apparent um, that obviously not all did. In fact, even into the life of Paul, we see that there are still some of these disciples of John, the Baptist running around loose, who don't even know about Christ. In Acts chapter 19, verses 2 through 5, he said unto, him, uh, unto them, this is Paul, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then, John, uh, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a nice little positive um, response at the end there. Um, that's why I included that final verse, because at least here in this situation, the disciples of John or the followers of John the Baptist had a change of heart or they were able to uh, listen to what Paul had to say and, and um, converted to being followers of Christ, the true uh, Christian life. Um, but in our scenario here, in our chapter, chapter 9, uh, these so-called disciples of John, they asked Jesus a question in verse 14. They asked, why do we fast? Okay, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your followers, you don't fast? In other words, what they're really saying is, why is or how come the way you uh, do things or how come your way of doing things is so different from ours? Uh, why are your teachings and your ways different from our ways? And they, they in particular, bring up this, this idea of fasting. Um, fasting was one of the major expressions of Jewish tradition. They had uh, routine fasts that they would participate in on a ritualistic basic, uh, on a ritualistic basis. Um, again, it was very ritualistic. Um, oftentimes, it was devoid of any true spirituality of any real meaning, because it was just a routine at this point. Um, and I think this is a, a very important concept for us um, today to understand, because it's something that we can all fall into. We can all fall into this trap if we're not careful. You know, you can think about people in the world today who, you know, they pray a little prayer before they eat their dinner. Uh, they own a Bible, and every now and again they may open it up and and read a couple of scriptures. They, they maybe attend church services on a regular basis. They go through the motions. They sing the songs. Um, they do all these things. They go through the routines, the externals, but they don't truly understand or tap into the internal, the inside, um, and they don't know what it means to be convicted of sin. They don't know what it means to have deep repentance in their hearts. Um, 
or they've just allowed themselves to forget and become complacent. Let's look at verse 15 and we'll see what Jesus has to say about this. And uh, verse 15, And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Jesus is saying, look, this is a wedding. This is a celebration right now. This is a happy time. You don't expect the groom's attendants or the groomsmen to mourn during a wedding feast, do you? So why, why would it be time to fast at this time? It's, it's, a, it's a time to eat and be merry because the Son of God is here. The Messiah is here. It's a happy time. It's not a time for, for fasting, for mourning. It's a time to be happy and joyous. Their ritual that they had of fasting was out of sync with the reality of Jesus Christ, you see. If you ever meet someone who tells you that they fast once a week or five times a month or whatever possible combination of dates and, and, and times, or maybe it's praying or any, any other sort of ritualistic spiritual activity, ask them why they keep that ritual. Fasting is connected with mourning. Fasting is connected with praying. Fasting is connected with meditation. It's not something you do just for the sake of doing it, if that makes sense. You don't just fast because it's a routine, because you feel like it's an obligation, that you have to do it. That's not why people fast. That's not why you should fast. Jesus says that they shouldn't fast until after he has left them, because at that point, it will be appropriate. Okay, right now it's a celebration. He's here. He's with us. Okay, that's what he's telling them right here. The message is simply this. If you go through any religious exercise apart from an honest attitude in the heart, it is a ritual and nothing more. If you fast just to fast, pray just to pray, go to church just to go to church, read the Bible just to read the Bible, study just to study, sing songs just to sing songs, you've missed the point entirely. There's no connection to what the Pharisees and the disciples of John are doing when they fast with what Jesus, the Messiah, is doing right now. And that's what he's telling them. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old, into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. In other words, there is no way that what I teach can fit into your system right now. What I'm teaching is going to be very radical. It's going to be very different from everything that you've ever known and, and, and learned. Yes, there are similarities. Yes, there are things that that are pulled out from the Old Testament, the Old Past, I mean, from the past, and that apply to the, to the New Age. But Jesus is teaching. The reason he came into the world was to be radical and was to um, have a plan and give a new plan, a better way for his people and for his followers and for the world uh, if they're willing to accept him. Um, so there was no way that what he taught would be, have been able to fit into the system of the Pharisees and of the scribes um, and the disciples of John here in this situation. No way. There's no way that the message that he was giving 
uh, that message of internal holiness, of uh, 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 being retrospective, of uh, having real, true repentance of sins, of a hard attitude, a hard way of living. There's no way that that could have ever fit in the ritualistic system that they held at that time, the, the, the Pharisees and, and all those who were, again, self-righteous and, and considered themselves holy. Not only wouldn't it connect with their system, but their system couldn't even contain Jesus' teachings. And for us today, I'll just say, please do not compromise your faith by adhering to traditions um, or rituals without truly understanding the deeper implications and meanings of those rituals, of those practices, of those spiritualistic um, uh, practices, and Christianity as a whole. It's important that we don't compromise ourselves when we're, uh, even when we come to the services, when we come to church services and we participate in the singing, we participate in um, uh, the Lord's Supper, we hear the prayers, we uh, hear the, the message spoken from the pulpit. It's important that we truly understand the significance behind all these uh, rituals that we do every Sunday and whenever we meet in a worship service and not just go through the routine of <clears throat> going through the motions just for the sake of getting through it or doing it because it's, it's an obligation and that's it. We have to truly understand the deeper meaning behind all these rituals. In terms of application, I have three things that I think we can uh, really take out of this chapter. First is that Jesus has the authority. We saw this in the first part of our chapter. We need to understand that we are all sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. And therefore, we need something, some remedy, in order to uh, cut out that sin so that we can have a relationship with him. Jesus has the power to forgive those sins if we trust and obey his gospel message. And the obedience of the gospel message, we show that uh, through baptism. The other thing we can take from the chapter is that Jesus calls sinners, not those who are self-righteous. Jesus came to save the lost, not those who call themselves righteous, not those who call themselves holy, those who are seeking him out. And we, need, we as his people, need to also bear that in mind. When we're going through our daily lives, we need to go out and seek those people who are looking for answers, who are lost, who realize, recognize that they have sin in their lives and are looking for a better way. And we need to be a good example for them in our lives as well. And then finally, this idea that truth is greater than tradition. The truth of Jesus Christ, of his gospel message, was more powerful than the traditions of the Pharisees and of the, um, uh, the Jew Jewish leadership at the time. Um, his, the, old, the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament. Truth is greater than tradition. Uh, performing spiritual rituals ne uh, means nothing if our hearts and our minds are not, or if our hearts and our minds are tainted, if our hearts and our minds are not truly in to what we're doing, then we might as well not even do it because we're just going through motions, we're just doing a ritual, and that is not beneficial to us, and it's not beneficial to God. It does not give him glory. And then also, finally, care for truth over tradition and give your all to Christ. I think these are all good 
uh, points that we can take away, good messages that we can take away from this chapter. I appreciate the opportunity you gave me to speak with you this evening. I hope that some of what I had to say was beneficial to you in some way, um, that maybe you learned something this evening. But uh, hopefully, or um, most of all, I hope that what I had to say was uh, was, uh, pleasing in the sight of the Lord and in accordance with His will. At this time, there is going to be two invitations offered. One for any who wish for the prayers of the congregation. If you um, have sin in your life, maybe, and you're wanting to have that sin forgiven, and you're a child of God, and you, you um, want us to pray with you and for you to, to ask for forgiveness of those sins, we'll be happy to do that. Um, if there be any here tonight who have not fallen this, followed the steps to become a child of God, um, you have sin in your life right now, and, and the only way to blot out that sin is to follow his gospel plan, to come forward, confess his name, if you truly believe that he's the Son of God, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Be one of either class. Please come forward and have a seat at the front pew as we stand and sing the song. It's been selected.